Reading from Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 to 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin in universal, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, everybody. I uh, heard from my friend, the conductor, who always or tries to always have a joke for me. Uh, do you know, you want to hear her joke for me today? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, can I give a little bit more enthusiasm? <laughs> so she said, Do you know what? Chick-fil-A employees and San Francisco 49er fans have in common. She said they need to both stay at home on Sundays. Ow. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Is it because it wasn't funny or you're 49er fans? I don't know, sir. Can you fool up the punch? <laughs> I cleaned up, but it got wet today. You know, it's so terrible out there being wet, which reminds me, <laughs> you folks are kind of soft. I hear you come in and everybody's complaining about all of the rain <laughs> and I'm just going, what? Because I talked to my brother and said, Phil, you can't believe it. He said, I have drifts of snow eight feet above my front door and more snow is coming in. Oh, and it's 32 degrees below zero wind chill. So when I hear you talk about the difficulties of rain, there's not a lot of empathy that I, that I had for you. But I do need to apologize because last Sunday, uh, I gave you a challenge of, of being the fragrance of crimes. And I gave everybody roses, right? Um, some of you came up afterwards and said, my rose smelled awfully fragrant. <laughs> Are you sure you didn't add anything to the roses? And just in the interest of full disclosure, I did. I went to the hardcore store and I'm going, I'm smelling these roses. I got on the at Trader Joe's from Boom. They don't smell like much and it's going to ruin everything. So I go, I wondered if they got anything at a hardware store. So I go in the hardware store. I know it's a great <laughs> hardware store. They had a little bottle of essential rose oil. And I'm going, that 
So I got a little spray bottle and brought it along and, and I'm going, okay, I don't think that was too much. Rochelle comes in last week. She goes, why does it smell like roses in here? Like, oh, I need to open the windows or something. They're going to figure me out. But here's my question. Were you the fragrance of Christ this past week? A fake <laughs> <laughs> You weren't even here. So you don't get a statistic. Ha ha ha. 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 Ha but I'm going to start by talking about parting words. And uh, what I mean are quite often farewell words. These are farewell words that are concentrated with, with meaning. Um, and I don't know how this happened, but people began to collect parting words or farewell words because they felt like they had almost uh, a sacred meaning, at least some of them. Uh, Here's one. One last drink, please. That was by the real Jack Daniels. Last thing he said on the face of this earth. One more drink, kids. But some of the party words have a lot more meaning. Here's another one. Give my love to the churches. Tell the women to stand firm. I go to prepare a place for you. Harry Tubman. Isn't that cool? And you, you read it, you go, wow, that does almost feel sacred. And we want to hold on to those parting words. Now, uh, parting words aren't just uttered at death. Did your parents have any parting words for you when you were a freshman in college and they dropped you off at the door? Did, were there any last-minute things that they shared that you can, that can, that you can remember? Or on the day that you graduated, or maybe it was the day that your Honda Civic was packed to the guild and you were going to be leaving for your first real job down in LA. And your, your mom pulls you aside and she shares her famous last words with you. I can remember still, it was the day that. Uh, I was graduating from high school and they told us that, okay, this was a different era. We needed to all have decent uh, shine shoes and decent socks underneath our robes because people would see our socks. So I went into my dad's room and stole some of his good socks. Details in it. You don't need to know. But he comes in and he goes, oh, stealing my socks again? I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, well, I wanted to talk to you. And that was a precious parting set of parting words that, uh, you know, I as savored of these days and talked about his failures as a dad, but also his, his hope for me. And then there is the, the challenge of the kind of young man that he hoped I would, I would be. And so I paid attention to parting, been parting, uh, words over my, over my life. And you know what? I see some of that here in what Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and, and 6. Now, you don't see it initially because when Paul writes, his ideas are so dense. His ideas are like a good typhoon. They're just 
Okay, bear with me on this one. But there, you, you have good Thai food. It's like all these flavors are all layered together. And Paul's writings are like that. But if he drone up to about 5,000 feet, then you're able to see a pattern. And here you see a pattern in Paul that looks a lot like my dad's conversation. A good set of party words have three parts. There is me where like my dad was talking about, well, I, I wasn't perfect as a dad. And then he moved over to the motives or why he wants to have the conversation and then the third part is, I want to talk to you about you. This is a pattern that comes up again and again and again in history in parting words. Talking about me and my weakness or my limitation, my motives, and my hope for you. Well, like I say, it's fly out to 5,000 feet. That's what you see in the Apostle Paul. It looks like this. Chap um, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, he talks about the body is intense. There's weakness here. Uh, my motives, he talks about my calling is for reconciliation. And then the third one, I want you to be a temple in which God can dwell. Now, this is so rich. We could spend a year just looking at, at this chapter. But what we're going to do, I just want to look at the last one about being a temple. Now, um, most of the time, when we think about temples, if I say the word temple, you almost automatically think in terms of a building, right? Some structure somewhere where people show up and they talk about faith or whatever. But that really is a fairly new idea. Let's go to the next. How people thought of temples going all the way back into the, into the ancient Near East, is that a temple was more like an extension or a wormhole or an embassy. And I call it a field office of where God was located. So God was someplace else. But there is a field office of God here close to me where I would go and I would encounter God and I would get... I would hope to see God's power or get something on th that I need. The temple wasn't primarily a building. A temple was a place where you go to access God, his presence, and, and his power. But for the most part, it had become a building. But you see something fascinating happen in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where the temple language isn't applied to a building. It's applied to people. And that is an entirely new idea where God shows up and the temple are a man and woman together. They both convey the image of God. Uh, a room full of men does not... A temple make a room full of women does not a temple make it takes men and women together to be the temple of god entirely new idea there, there are no parallels of anything like this in the ancient earrings fascinating fascinating idea but it doesn't last there's rebellion instead of maintaining the field office as people they rather start one of your own and we know about they're going into the, into egypt 
and then coming back. And God somehow accommodates their rebellion. He says, okay, I'm going to degrade you. You're not going to be the temple as you were. Uh, I want you to make a tabernacle in the wilderness, sort of a movable experience of my power, of my presence, that you can go and you can be at a couple of times the year. And that's what they have until they finally can settle down in, in the land of Israel. From the tabernacle, there is the temple. Solomon builds it. Isaiah says this about it. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. So even though it's located in one place, I think we're still getting a hint that somehow what God has in store for the future is going to get access to people wherever they live. Incredible idea. But again, rebellion sets in. The Jews are exiled to Babylon. And when they come back, they go, well, maybe we need to rebuild our glorious field office one more time. And they try. They really do. But you get the sense that their screen is faded into black. There's not a lot of hope. The tabernacle didn't work. The temple did not work. And then Jesus comes. And let's go to the next slide. Oh, no, let's go back. Uh, what does John say? John chapter 1, verse 14. How does he describe Jesus? Bring any thoughts? And dwelt among us. That additional phrase is so important because the Greek word used for, for dwelt points back to the Old Testament idea of tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And what John, I think, is signaling is, is that God is doing something pretty amazing again. He's returning back to something that started all the way back in the, in the book of Genesis, where God is creating a field office. He's supplying his presence, but he's locating an embassy of his face in people, in his people. In us. Now, next slide. Uh, this isn't just something that John talked about. First Corinthians, earlier book here. Um, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, from which you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now, we tend to read that and pastors love us because it it really sets up this idea of whatever it is that you're doing, quit it because you need to be the body of Christ. So quit your drinking, smoking, and, and all that sort of stuff. There's a problem to that. The English language doesn't have second person plural for you. So when we read this, we read this thinking that, oh, he's talking to each person by her son. In reality, it needs to read something more like this. Because you is you together. 
Don't you all know that you all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you all, which you all have from God and that you all are not you all's own. For you all were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in you all's body. You get it? So Paul is saying, this is not just you by yourself interacting with God. This is a message for all of you together. You all are this new temple of God. The presence of God is among you. People need to look to you to see his presence and his power and his grace. Pretty incredible idea. Nothing really like it, like I said, in, in the ancient world. So let's review. People thought of temples as divine outposts and field offices where they can most likely find God. To access his power and find reconciliation. In Genesis, his temple was peace. Because of rebellion, that idea got postponed and God accommodates their means for buildings. But now what we see in the life of the early church is they don't care about buildings. They care about, are we together the temple of the living God? Now, when you have that in mind, it begins to make sense why Paul and others are so concerned that people practice their spiritual gifts inside the church. Because if we're not practicing our spiritual gifts, the implication is, is that we're not holding together as the temple of God. It also begins to explain why Paul and James and others are so focused on unity in the church, because it's not just unity by itself. It is, if we are not living together in unity, we will not be the temple of God for the nations of the earth and for the glory of God. So these aren't just arcane theological ideas about spiritual gifts or unity. This is a grand picture, a story that, that is unfolding here. And uh, one other thing I'd say is this isn't just Paul's idea. This is something that seems to permeate the early church. Look, you're Peter. Uh, he says, live like living stones. Let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, all of that leads us to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul is going to say this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I grew up hearing a lot of messages about how this applies to people of faith should not marry people outside of faith. And I would say that's a sound application, but that is not primarily what Paul is saying he's not talking primarily about the marriage relationship he's speaking to a much wider audience this has a lot more nuance than he's saying beloved we are the temple of the living God we are the field offices that people need to look at to be drawn to God to sense his presence to experience his power so for goodness sakes when you look at your lives your relationships don't be yoked together with unbelievers. And this is where I so like to take Paul aside for just a minute or two and say, 
what do you mean by that? Uh, let me go a little bit further. Next slide. Paul says in verse 16, I will live among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. How do we make connections with this idea for us today? Well, I think on on the on a very uh, connected level, is there anything in what we know of First and Second Corinthians right now that would help us understand what he had in mind? I think there might be. Uh, what comes to mind most is that there had been a man who was part of the fellowship, and their fellowship was probably only forty or fifty, maybe sixty people. You know, we tend to think that these churches were large, but not in these days. We remember back in when I was talking about Romans, maybe a church of 140 people, the church in Corinth, maybe 40, 50, 60 people. And there had been a man who was part of the church family who at one point moved in with his stepmother. And the church didn't seem to have a problem with it. I suspect that might be an echo that's going on in the back of Paul's mind here, where he's saying, brothers and sisters, um, don't be unequally yoked. Watch out that you not become morally numb in your wives. Watch out that you don't lose your conviction about sexual ethics about how people need to be treated. Look not just at those things, though. Look at when it's time to start a new business, your business partners. Look at your attachments, your alliances, your addictions. Look to see if there is spiritual drift, moral drift inside of you. Because if those things are allowed to continue, what happens to the attractiveness and impact of the temple together? Because it's not just you by yourself. It's the whole church family. And so he's saying, look, I'm, I don't have a shopping list of everything that you should and shouldn't do. That's not how it works. But instead, do a spiritual inventory. Is there anything going on in your lives, in the hearts of your lives that nobody else sees, that you know could be neutralizing your own impact in and through the community. Uh, had a, some dear friends in Boulder, Colorado, Frank and Nancy, and they're just dear, dear, dear friends. Nancy's dad had, had been an elder in his church and had been the CEO of a large corporation. And, and he and his wife came out and were just staying with Frank, Frank and Nancy for about 10 or 11 days. And just sitting with them, watching the movies and hearing them talk. One time over dinner, nothing else was going on. He goes, uh, yeah. Could you, uh, could somebody just pass the blank and you blank blank potatoes? And they went, what? And people, the, the, the family was so shocked. They just went, what, what's he doing? And Nancy said, Dad, 
And that was the first one. Later on, when it was time to zip for dessert, he goes, yeah, could I have a blankety blank, really, really large piece. Finally, Frank goes, Dad, we don't talk that way here in this house. And, he, and dad-in-law said, well, you know, it's funny you say that because I've been sitting here for the last couple of weeks and I'm listening to movies where all sorts of things are said and you don't seem to flinch at that. Now, even as I tell you that, part of me goes, well, I don't want to sound too narrow or anything like that, but I think about how I used to really be bothered or be careful what I put into my brain and, and movies with all sorts of questionable um, things I kind of stayed away from. And it's interesting how as Netflix has permeated my life, I don't seem to have the ethical edge that I did before. And this is not me telling you what you need to do, what, what you should accept or not accept. I think that's one of the reasons why Paul leaves in general so that each of us says, hey, in my relational life, in my work life, in my entertainment life, am I as dialed in in my walk with Christ as I need to be so that together we can be this, this temple? Um, the living God for the sake of the nations. Um, one last thing I wanted to point out. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. John gives us this stunningly beautiful, beautiful image of the new heaven. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. But you know what's missing at the center of the city? There's no town. And that's the way it ought to be, right? Because in the new heaven and the new earth, we are the type of together of the living God. So, uh, I know this sounds cheesy. I want you to turn and just make eye contact with somebody else. Don't have to say anything. Just make eye contact. Not your phone. <laughs> Not your phone. And just go, oh my goodness. They're going to be beside me in the new heavens when we were because we together are in the temple of the living God. So Paul Coins is so... is. So utterly simple, brothers and sisters, let us be vigilant together. Let's remove the obstacles that uh, disunity or lethargy or moral numbness so that together we would live in reality as the temple of the living God in which God's presence is made manifest for the sake of our world. Make sense? And we pray. Father, uh, as we move into worship, 
it, uh, it stops me <laughs> because Paul uses this image about being unequally yoked and <laughs> I don't get that one. I'm, I'm, it's been years and years since I've been on my farm, but the idea of an oxen linked with a type of, that, that wouldn't happen. We'd laugh at it. But what Paul says is that if we're not vigilant, we are going to be teamed up with those who are with people or with activities or with mindsets that somehow stymie people's access to you and we don't want to do that. So for us as a church, because we're moving into this new season with uh, soon a new pastor leading uh, a, a church passionate to, to follow you for the sake of each other and for the city, I pray that, that you renew the beauty and the glory and the possibility of what it means for us to be the temple of the living God, that what began in the Garden of Eden is continuing on through us for your reputation. And may your hand be upon each one of our lives. Uh, may we be transparent and open before you. In Jesus' name, amen.